0: One of the things that my wife still likes to tease me about is the fact that I am terrible at directions. Now, we've lived, we've lived in Zephyr Hill since 2006, and I still don't leave the house without my GPS. <laughs> Even if I'm going to Bill and Pam's house that I've been to, right? Anybody else like that? Anybody directionally challenged? Okay, a couple of you will admit it, right? Well, you know, when I was at uh, at Chaplin's class last week, I, I read about a preacher who was kind of like that. He was just called to serve a real small country church way out in Oklahoma and he wanted to mail a letter back east to let his family know that he and his his wife had arrived safely so he started walking into the town he starts walking toward the center of town and as he gets part way there he meets a little boy coming back the other direction and he says son could you tell me the way to the post office well the boy told him the directions and after he got his answer the minister thanked the man and bent down and shook his hand, and he said, Now, son, if you'll come tonight with your family, you can hear me tell everyone how to get to heaven. And the little boy looked up at the pastor like he would lost his mind, and he said, No offense, Reverend, but you can't even find the post office. <laughs> so, so directions are important, right? <laughs> Directions are important. That's kind of what we're celebrating today. We are celebrating the church's recovery of its direction. We're celebrating the followers of the way getting back on track. And we're celebrating the rebirth of the church in the advent of the Protestant Reformation, which sought not to destroy the church, not to deny the essential tenets of the faith, not to throw out all of its sacred history, but rather to get back on course because, sadly... Over time, the church, the institutional church, had strayed away from its original purpose. You know, I shared a a quote two weeks back with the folks in Sunday school um, about kind of the direction that the institutional church had taken over the centuries. It's a quote from Reverend Dr. Richard Halverson, who was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate from 1981 to 1994. Let me tell you what he said. He said, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Then it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it has become a huge business enterprise. And that's really true, isn't it? That's kind of a loose generalization of history, but the point is, the church went from a man-made institution with the, with the Ten Commandments and the Great Commission and an emphasis on God's sovereignty and on his love to a man-made institution with an emphasis on man-made rules and rituals and kind of a, a misguided focus on the consumer-oriented business practices of the world where people, all of you people, become quantified as revenue. And the collection plate becomes the measure of success rather than the growth together as a family. And it's, it's been that way on and off since the beginning of the 16th century, where at the time the church was becoming very wealthy off of the sale of something called indulgences. If you take home all your little handouts, you can read about that. But it was a, a, a fee that worshipers could pay to free the souls of their departed loved ones from purgatory. And the, the common folk of that day eagerly lined up to drop in their coins without ever realizing that salvation is not up for sale. It's not up for sale. And that they couldn't have afforded it even if it had been. And now part of the reason, though, for that misunderstanding is because there were very few Bibles then. And the people didn't know God's word. Now, I'm sure the people in this crowd probably have, who, who has more than one Bible? Right? But in that day, Bibles were rare. And the few Bibles that were available were written only in Latin. So since very few people other than the wealthy or the well-educated could read or speak Latin, they had to trust that what the pastor behind the pulpit told them was the word of God. And as the institutional church began to decline morally, that stopped happening. And God's word became obscured. But, you know, we know that the word of God can't be contained, can it? God's word can't be locked away or veiled for long because it is powerful. And it is alive and it is active from the very first words of the book of Genesis to the last amen in Revelation. And I told Sunday school class this morning, you know, even a little bit of scripture has power, even a tiny bit. In fact, would you be surprised if I told you that just seven little words, just one half of one verse from one of the smallest books of the Bible, a little tiny book of Habakkuk, has a direct impact on the fact that you and I are in this room today and that this congregational church exists at all. Do you believe that? Let me show you what I mean. It's a tiny little verse from our lectionary. Anybody reading the lectionary? I don't see many hands. It's from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says, The just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. the prophet Habakkuk wrote that in about 700 B.C. in his book of prophecy. About 800 years later, the apostle Paul made reference to it in his letter to the Romans. About 1,500 years after that, Brother Martin Luther read it in the New Testament, and he believed it, and he lived by it, which got the attention of this guy, Pope Leo X, who got really mad, and the world has never been the same again. Now, that's kind of the Reader's Digest version, but I want to kind of unpack it a little bit for you so I can share with you how all of that happened. I don't know how many of you have read the biography of Martin Luther by Julius Posting. If you haven't read it, it is an excellent book. Now, Martin Luther was a fascinating man. He was flawed, like all of us, but fascinating. He was born November tenth, 1483. That's my math folks, right? Five, I wrote down 533 years ago next month. JJ can check me on that. He was the son of German miners, just like my great-grandparents were. And, you know, he didn't set out to be a priest. He set out to be a lawyer. So he's at university one day, and he's walking with a classmate, when suddenly a huge bolt of lightning from out of nowhere strikes very near to both of them, and both men were thrown from the blast. Now, Luther's companion was literally burnt to a crisp. He died instantly, but the young Luther didn't know that at the moment because it had all happened so fast, and Luther had been thrown so hard and so far that he had knocked all the wind right out of him, and he lay face down in the dirt not knowing if he was going to start breathing again or not. And in that moment, in that desperate, life-changing moment, he made his first mistake because instead of calling out to God, he said he prayed to St. Anne. And he promised her that if he was allowed to live, he would join a monastery. Well, you know, he did live. And although he regretted that rash vow, he made good on his word. And in 1505, he joined the Augustinian Monastery at Erfurt in Germany. And he was absolutely miserable. Because he had started out his monastic life on flawed motives and without godly advice. And as a result, his time there was anything but fruitful. And once he got there, he kept compounding his own problems because just like he sought the advice of a a saint rather than a savior about his decision to become a monk, he made the same mistake about his career paths once he got into the monastery and about his Christian life. He wore himself completely out in the pursuit of redemption through good works and his own self-righteousness within the rituals and the rules of the Catholic Church instead of directly with our living Christ. And he was pretty hard on himself. He, he writes that he tried to earn salvation and impress God by beating himself with straps. He stood outside in the cold in his bare feet for hours, and he went to confession continually so much so that he actually wore out all of his confessors until eventually no one in the monastery would hear his confession anymore. In fact, his last confessor at the monastery on being woken up in the middle of the night so Luther could make just one more confession that day, said, Martin, Martin, whatever it is, just go back to bed. God can forgive you tomorrow. But thankfully now Luther was just as brilliant and dedicated to his education as a scholar and to his work as he was to making confessions. And because of that, he rose very quickly up through the academic ranks. But, you know, all the while, he was completely empty on the inside. He felt totally lost spiritually, even though he spent every day and night inside of a church. Until one day, he made a very shocking confession. And I confess I was shocked when I read it. These are his own words. He said, you know, every day when I'm here in the monastery, I hear the priest say that I need to love God I need to love God, I need to love God. But he said, you know, I didn't love God, I hated him. I hated him. Because no matter what I did, no matter what I tried, it was never enough. I could never attain salvation, and I can't take it anymore. And he almost collapsed in despair. He was completely at the end of his rope. But, you know, sometimes that's where God makes the best use of our lives. isn't Because now that he had finally come to the end of himself, he made, for the first time, a right choice in his life. And he said that this time he prayed directly to God. Not to the virgin, not by the mediation of any saint. He prayed directly to God and he said, Sovereign Lord, I'll do anything, anything to find you. I'll do anything to find you. And now there was no second bolt of lightning. There was no thunder from heaven. There was no immediate answer, but you know what? God always keeps his word. And he promised us in Jeremiah 29, 13, he said, you shall seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. With all of your heart. And that gift of faith is a sovereign gift from God. And so now Luther, with that faith, he continues to be very diligent in his work and in his studies. And as a result, he becomes appointed as a delegate to the court of Pope Leo X in Rome. Thinking that he's going one way when God is actually leading him in another way. Because all the while Martin Luther was being changed and God was weaving the threads of his life behind the scenes. So he gets to Rome. He arrives in the city and he's shocked by all the corruption and the immorality and the luxurious decadence of the princes of the church and he becomes even more depressed than ever. And so he decides he's going to make a tour of the city. He heads out to kind of take his mind off things and see the sights of Rome. And after a short walk, he comes to a place called the Lateran Steps. It's a long flight of white marble steps that had been taken from Pontius Pilate's praetorium court in Jerusalem and installed in the papal basilica. A set of steps that tradition said Jesus stood atop of. when Pilate tried to release him to the crowd, but they called out for his execution instead. And previous popes had declared that any pilgrim to Rome would automatically be forgiven any previous sin they had committed if he or she would crawl to the top of those steps on their hands and knees. So he started at the bottom. He started the slow crawl up the steps, but he immediately knew in his heart that it wasn't right. All of a sudden, a a flash, he said, like a burst of light came in, and the Holy Spirit brought to his mind that line from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he repeated that to himself over and over again as he climbed up those steps on his knees. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he kept climbing and climbing. And when he reached the top of those stairs and stood up, God gave him the amazing revelation that he was forgiven. Not because he had climbed to the top of his steps, but forgiven by unmerited grace alone on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And not in any good works or self-denial or formulas or rituals, but purely out of God's love. And he also suddenly realized that the ultimate authority for the true Christian life was to be found in the Bible and not in the doctrines of men. And in that moment, he turned and walked down those ancient steps and the face of the Christian world and Western culture were changed forever. By cementing the ideas that ordinary Christians could and should reach out to God directly, and that we could read the Bible for ourselves, in our own language. And we didn't have to accept a centralized religious authority's ideas at face value. We didn't have to accept traditions as fact unless they were confirmed in the Scriptures. And best of all, we didn't have to be told what to think, because you and I can think for ourselves. And we are perfectly capable of discerning the transformational truths of the Scripture through the direct ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what I call a revolution. And you know, that's not all, because not only did Martin Luther believe God's word was for everybody, he also believed that church music was for everybody, for the whole congregation, and not just in a small professional choir or in a cloister of monks. Because God created music so everyone can sing. Now, maybe not that everyone should sing, right? I didn't say that. But everyone could sing. And in fact, his his beliefs about music and worship were so strong that he said, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. He said it controls our hearts and our minds and our spirits. And a person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God does not deserve to be called a human being. That's a pretty tough statement, isn't it? He also said he wanted the congregation to sing because, as he put it, The devil, who is the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless trouble, flees before the sound of God's music, almost as before his word. And his passionate beliefs on music led Luther to write his own music, and the words and the hymns for several songs, including A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, that we're going to sing at the end of the service, and that you hear Kitty play on the bells at the beginning of, of worship each week. He published his first hymnal in 1524 containing four songs that he had written himself for use in the congregation singing. Because he said, who doubts that originally all of God's people sang to the things which now only the choir sings or just responds to as the mass is consecrated. Right? He wanted all of us to sing. Can you imagine being in this church and not singing? Right? And congregational singing and, and Bible reading are not the only thing that Luther set out to reform because he also rediscovered the essential nature of the sacraments. The ones instituted by the Lord. And let me explain to you what I mean. You may not realize it was only about 40 years before Martin Luther was born that the institutional church codified seven sacraments. In the institutional church it was baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, reconciliation, the anointing of the sick, and the taking of holy orders. The seven Catholic sacraments. But Luther and the other reformers like John Knox, who diligently searched the scriptures, rediscovered that the only sacraments that are explicitly mentioned in the Gospels are just two that Pastor John represented by what he carried up today, communion, holy communion, and baptism. So in response to that great awakening on October 31st, 1517, 499 years ago this weekend, Martin Luther, in order to call the church back to its first love and its humble beginnings, published his 95 thesis and nailed it to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, like Dr. Buddy did for us this morning. And with that, he threw open the floodgates of the Reformation, freeing men and women to recapture the simplicity and the sincerity of the early church and reforming their thinking on the role of their own efforts to earn salvation. Because, you know, as I said before, salvation is not for sale we couldn't work hard enough for it if it were because it doesn't depend on our effort but on god's it doesn't depend on our effort but on god's and our feeble attempts to reach heaven any other way are destined to failure you know every time i work through this it always makes me think of stories you know people are always sharing stories with me or i read different stories and kind of cut them out and save them and when i was writing this earlier in the week it made me think of a, a story that someone shared for me and i've heard a couple different versions of it, so it's probably a combination of both if you've heard it, but either way, there were two young kids about J.J. and Kitty's age who had to go and stay with a distant aunt and uncle for the weekend because their parents were out of town at a business meeting, and their first morning there, their aunt set out breakfast for them, and as they started eating, they noticed that the plates and the glasses had kind of a greasy film all over them, and when they started to ask their aunt about it, she said, Sorry, kids, that's the best that old rags and cold water can do. Lunchtime came around. This time the forks had, you know, stuff stuck between the tines. Have you ever seen that? Little dried up bits of food. When they asked their aunt about the dirty silver, where she gave them the same answer, she said, Sorry, kids, that's the best that old rags and cold water can do. Now finally, supper time comes around. And this time the kids are determined to really get a different answer And they're going to ask their aunt what she meant because they knew the house had hot water. They could see a clean dish rag hanging over the sink. And so they walk into the kitchen door, they're walking through, and and they caught their uncle finishing up a a piece of pie that he had snuck before supper. And they they watched as he took the plate and and set it down on the floor. And, And when he stood up, he threw open the back door and yelled, come on, rags, come here, cold water. Come on in, boys. (laughs) I like that story. But, you know, it's a great example. It's a great example of how useless it is to try to clean up our lives without doing it the right way. Without knowing where the source of purity comes from. Without having a connection to the living water from the fount of righteousness. You know, Isaiah told us in chapter 64, he said, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. And without a direct connection to Jesus Christ, staying filthy is the best that we can do. And you know, you can kill yourself trying everything from transcendental meditation to 12-step programs to counseling to lighting enough candles to fill a temple and still know that inside our best efforts are not good enough and that we're still empty and that we never really change until change finds us from the outside. From heaven because you see there's a world of difference between knowing about god and knowing god personally and luther and the reformers rediscovered that and so did the common people and they began to realize that it's not the what of our faith that saves us it's the who jesus christ in his one-time sacrifice for our sins that set us free from ourselves and from our sinful nature and he came to free us from the the bondage of sin and to lay that foundation that the early church was built on and that the reformers could rediscover. And that is the possibility of a genuine relationship directly with God. One that's not ruled by clergy or church councils and gave us the promise of forgiveness not based on what we have done, but based on what Christ has done. And in the words of Martin Luther and the other reformers, they said, we are justified according to the scriptures alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. And that Reformation spirit can continue here today as we recommit ourselves to the word of God and the commands of Jesus Christ, not as a chore or as a burden or something to achieve, but as the core and the source of our daily lives. You know, I read a commentator that said, God's boundaries keep us safe, but man-made boundaries keep us isolated. God's boundaries keep us safe, but man-made boundaries keep us isolated. And that's really the point of the Reformation movement, because, you know, the Reformation wasn't about a, a defiant protest so much as it was a sincere call for the church to address its misuses and abuses that had obscured the, the beauty and the simplicity and the liberty of the gospel. And so today we don't celebrate division. don't celebrate division. Rather, we celebrate the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church and in our hearts. And it's only the movement of that Holy Spirit that can bring revival and renewal, both in our personal lives and in the universal church, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, inviting us together to continue the journey until God calls his people home. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, by your Word alone, our eyes have seen salvation in Jesus Christ. Salvation through faith alone and not by any works of our hands. Father, by your grace alone, we are purchased from every nation. Through Christ alone, we stand to bring you glory. So we ask you, Lord, to lead us forward now, Holy King. Make us pure and clean in heart. Tune our minds to sing your praise and grow us closer to you through your word that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.